I hope you are as well. I'm excited for the Croft Ranch too. I do hope you'll all come, anybody that's able to do so. It is a fun event, even if I can't uh, chase you down yet. We'll get there. All right. Actually, I still remember one of my first camps. I was probably, I was a lot younger than I am now, but it's like 25 years old, and I had some junior high uh, athlete who, eighth grade boy, just thought he was all that, you know, and he told me he was, I was never going to be able to chase him down. Well, he got about five steps, and I tackled him to the ground and rubbed crayon or marker all over his face. That was a face chapel free scum days, but anyways, it was fun. All right. Well, we are talking about being counter-cultural, right? And um, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus, again, for those of you that maybe are, uh, haven't been here for our, our whole series, he, he lays down the Sermon on the Mount is one of the first messages he gives, and he's essentially laying out framework, a skeletal structure for the kind of ministry he's going to have, and he's making a bunch of strong recommendations. He's not making a bunch of commands to start off with, um, but a lot of strong recommendations, and what he's doing is he's two, doing two different things. One, he's separating himself from the, the world, you know, the, the worldly ways, but in a different and more surprising way, he's separating himself from Jewish customs and some of the traditions that the Jews would have had, and not, not necessarily cultural, or not a, not a like Pentecost or some of those things that he come to fulfill. But he's, but a framework like a mental shift. You know, sometimes we have mental expectations in our culture, right? I remember, for example, um, you know, if if you think about it, you know, we talked about dress, for example, right? If you rewind the the tape of how students would have dressed in high school twenty years ago. Is very different, right? If you rewind the tape, how they would have dressed 100 years ago, it's very, very different, correct? Right? And I remember having a conversation with, uh, when I interned at Faith Chapel uh, years and years ago, we had interns that came from Brazil and South America. We had interns from uh, Norway and from Holland in Europe. And it was very interesting because you had really like a clash of three cultures, right? You had American culture, you had South American culture, and you had European culture. And it was interesting what people... Uh, Senator Grace, can you shut that door? It was interesting what people... Um, Chris, what Christians found upsetting and intolerable in one culture, and they accepted it in another culture. For example, right in America, we like our action movies. right? We're used to a lot of violence. In fact, I, but how many of you play a violent video game every once in a while? Right? It's pretty common, right? In Europe, they're actually horrified by that, Christians. They're horrified by watching violence or participating in a violent video game. They consider it very, very unchristian, right? They think Jesus would be rather offended by it, right? And then in Europe, our friends were uh, more than happy to watch quite a bit of nudity on TV. And we're like, uh, Christians don't watch that stuff, you know? And so it was kind of a wake-up call a little bit, but sometimes we get in a cultural mindset in different areas of the world where we begin to accept different things of the world and we, don't re and we, re uh, we forget to reject or line ourselves up with Christ. Does that make sense? So sometimes, again, in different cultures, you're going to have different things you tolerate more than other things. And in fact, different households is probably the same way, right? Some households in the United States, Christian households, are going to tolerate some things, 
for another household will not. They might be horrified by the same thing. So we have to remember that we have kind of a cultural mindset that we grew up in. Not only the schools we grew up in, the families we grew up in, the churches we grew up in, the area of the country we grew up in, the area of the world we grew up in. Those things do influence us. And so when Jesus comes with the Sermon on the Mount, what he's trying to do, he's trying to help everybody from all of their different angles shift their mindset to the way that Jesus wants them to think. Does that make sense? So a Sermon on the Mount is laying a skeletal structure for them, a rough structure to try to help them shift their mentality on things that they think are acceptable that maybe are not quite as acceptable as they think. And he's particularly aiming at the Jewish faithful, so the people that would think they're doing the best. He's trying to help them change their mindset in a few ways. So remember we did, we talked about being poor in spirit, right? And poor in spirit, he, he starts off talking about how um, the, those who are humble and who are actually broken rather than proud before God are going to receive the kingdom of God or receive salvation from God. And they're also going to get glimpses of heaven now in their life. Where they're going to see miracles take place. And moments they're like, wow, there's only explanation for that is that God moved and moved and God did something special. We're going to see, uh, we talked about mourning, right, which is a little more, one of the more um, straightforward ones, but when we mourn, we cry out to the Lord when we lose something, whether it be a loved one in our lives, or we lose, uh, for example, maybe we make a mistake that costs us a lot, some kind of sin in our life, we mourn over that, we grieve that loss. Jesus promises when you do that and you truly grieve that you'll be comforted by him. We talked about the meek, right? That the meek who patiently endure conflict without resentment will receive peace and relational prosperity. Right? Somebody who can who go through conflict without trying to always be right all the time and is more worried about the relationship than they are about winning the argument and can get through it without resenting the other person, without holding back, holding bitterness in their life, they're going to receive a peace and a relational um, prosperity that others will be envious of. So again, he's kind of laying out different things that sometimes we don't think about, right, in a culture. Right, you ever hear, hear somebody say, oh, I don't want to go to church, or I don't want to go to youth group because they're a bunch of hypocrites? Ever hear that? They're basically saying, well, people at church are messed up too. And the answer should be, well, yeah, of course they are, right? Because Jesus invites brokenness. I always think of it like the church is both a hospital and it's like an airport terminal, right? It's a hospital because people are being healed and brought to wholeness. So yes, there's a lot of messy stuff that takes place in the church. Absolutely, there better be for it to be healthy. And it's also like an airport terminal. People are coming in and people are going out on mission, healed and whole. So not everyone in the church is a hypocrite, but yes, absolutely, there's going to be a few. So again, anyways, Jesus is, I'm going to unplug this and plug this back in and see if it helps with all the cracking. All right, so, is it working? All right, we're good. So again, Jesus sets up these things on the Sermon on the Mount as strong suggestions or ways to operate as a person 
of faith, right? And if we truly follow these principles of operating as a person of faith, then in the end we get to where we read in Galatians about having the fruits of the Spirit in our life, and you'll see the abundance in your life. So let's read Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 again. Jesus starts off, and he says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, he sat down, with his, and his disciples came to him. Again, at this point, he didn't even have them all yet. He had a few, though. And he began to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Heather, can you grab me that whiteboard and bring it over here? I'm going to use it later in the message. So again, he talks about hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, right? So first of all, how would you define righteous? What is righteous? What do you guys think? What does it mean to be righteous? Pure, very good. Holy, very good. Kind-hearted, yes. What do you think? So here's a, a few definitions. Morally perfect. Sinless. To be God. Because he described himself as righteous, obviously. To be a reflection of God. To be Christ-like. The process of becoming more like Christ. Right, would be righteous. But I always think of like sinless, right? So can anyone be perfectly moral or sinless? No, right? Only Jesus was able to attain that. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 11 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who even seeks God. Right? In other words, we're all destined to turn our back on God for some time or another. Right? We're all destined to be hypocrites at some level or another. We're going to make mistakes. So why recommend for us to pursue righteousness if Jesus already knows that we're not going to do a very good job about it? What do you think? Why tell us to pursue righteousness? Yeah, honey? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, why tell us to pursue righteousness if we know, if, if God knows we're not really going to do that great of a job of it? Oh, you're good. All right, so he's asking, he's, he's given this invitation to, again, he's talking to a Jewish community, right? They understand rules, right? We understand rules as a culture, right? There are laws. We're not a lawless culture, think that sometimes, but we're not. You will get in trouble over certain things, right? And eventually you get caught and you pay a consequence for it. So we're not a lawless country. So the Jewish community understands rules. They're very, this is a culture that's high, high on rules, okay? They had over 600 and some um, Pharisee rules to add to the Ten Commandments. I mean, they understand rules, right? And he's given them this invitation to change that mindset of evaluating yourself just based on rules. Because can you not say that rules are exhausting? 
sometimes, right? I mean, everybody likes a few rules because you want it to be kind of a fair playing field, but playing field. But, you know, if I got up here every single week and instead of once in a blue moon talk about, hey, let's, you know, work on such and such, every single week if I gave you 10 or so new rules, would it not be like, I don't think I want to be a part of this, right? I mean, it'd be exhausting, right? Rules are exhausting. The more rules you get, the more exhausting it becomes. And so Jesus has given them this invitation to change from this rule mindset to like, hey, let's begin a new community that's going to look a little different. And again, he's, he lays out the skeletal structure that he's going to add to over the th- course of three years as he goes on his ministry. He's given them an opportunity to begin a new community. Something different than it's ever been before. And he's also given them an invitation that later on they're going to discover is going to separate people who confess to be Christian but are pretending to be a Christian and people who confess to be a Christian and are an authentic Christian. There's going to be a separation that takes place. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11 says, Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. Right? He's, he's, he's saying that, listen, you cannot justify yourself based on the law based on rules. No one can, on the face of the earth. Because eventually, you're going to be a hypocrite, and you're going to mess up, and you're going to make a mistake, and you're going to break a rule, right? And so if you break a rule, you condemn yourself and show yourself guilty. He's saying you cannot justify yourself before a perfect God by saying, hey, listen, I follow all these rules. God doesn't care because he knows, first of all, you don't follow them all as well as you think you do. You're going to make mistakes, right? And so he said, he said, the way you become righteous is by living by faith. I, I like uh, somebody's commentary on Romans, which Paul talks about the law. He's talking, again, to people who are very used to rules, right? The Jews are very used to rules. So are the Romans, the Roman government, right? The Roman soldiers, they're very used to rules. And he goes, listen, all the rules do is show you how broken you are and how much you need God and need a Savior. Because no one can follow them perfectly. All it does is point out your weakness and your need for Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Um, again, kind of pointing back to our actions still, though, do matter. Okay, so we want to declare Christ as Lord, right? Talking about the brokenness early on, and turn from sin and go choose to live for Christ, reflecting Christ in our choices. And Jesus, what he's really doing is he's telling them, I don't want you to, by the law, by the rules, prove that you're righteous. Instead, like Christian said, I want you to pursue being righteous. So it's interesting. He's given him an invitation to pursue something he knows they'll never achieve. You catch that? He's not telling them to be perfect, to be righteous. He's telling them to hunger for being more righteous than they are today. Because he knows every single person is going to fail. No one's going to be perfect. No one's going to be completely righteous. Everyone's going to be a little bit of a hypocrite. But the goal is that this year, 
when you look at yourself and you think of the things maybe you're struggling with, the things you think about that maybe you shouldn't have, the things you talk about that maybe you shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera, that next year when you look back a year later, the point is if you are hungry and thirsting for righteousness, when you look back, you'll be like, wow, I've changed a lot in a really healthy way. Now, a year later, you might look back and be like, whoa, I've changed a lot in a really healthy way. Right? So the point is, again, to become more and more like Jesus, knowing that we'll never fully accomplish it, but Jesus says to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? To hunger and thirst for being more like Jesus and more like God. But not in the way where we're bound and focused on the rules as much as bound and focused on the heart of Jesus. And when he gives a sermon on that, what he's doing is he's sharing his heart. That's why there's suggestions instead of commands. Do you see that? He doesn't want to give more commands because he knows all we're going to do is fail anyways. So he's giving us strong suggestions to become more like him. So there's kind of three trajectories which I want to just focus on. These are super simple. Right? If you chase after the world, the things of the world, the culture at school, Right? It's going to lead you like this. It's going to eventually tank your life. There's going to be a cost that comes with it. Because the ways of the world is rebellious. And the ways of the world breaks laws on purpose. And there's a high cost that comes with it. You can become like, um, I'll say the religious, which sometimes... A lot of people, I don't know if I spelled the right, yeah. A lot of times as a Christian, you might be, you ever hear the comment, whoa, you must be really religious, you go to church. You ever hear that? Right? Somebody said that to you? But what it really means to be religious is it means you're chasing rules, not a person. Because there's a big difference. Right? And it, for example, if you look at different faiths, Islamic faith is bound by rules. The whole point is to follow the rules. Mormon faith, all the reward system is totally a works-based system. It's bound by rules. Buddhist, it's bound by rules. Hindus, it's bound by rules. Every major faith upon the planet except for Christianity is bound by rules. Same thing with Jewish faith. Again, you don't make up 600-some rules to add to the Ten Commandments unless you, it's all about rules. Right? So what rules do is they lead you like this. If you follow them, just tag them. Never actually get any better. Also keeping you out of trouble getting worse. Now, if you instead are bound by a, a relationship with Jesus, and you chase righteousness, what's going to happen is you're going to find this. Now, it's not a perfect up and down. But eventually you're going to look back and you're going to say, Wow. God has really done some cool things in my life. And a lot of the things I struggled with in the past, I am 100% free from. Works does not do that for you. Rules does not do that for you. Now, you need to have good, healthy boundaries. We talk about boundaries because they help you get started. But it doesn't keep you safe, and it doesn't get you anywhere safe. It just helps get you started. Yes. 
transformation in your life. All right, so when again we hunger and thirst for righteousness or godliness, the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to become more righteous. In other words, when we hunger and thirst to become more like Jesus, Jesus meets us where we are and he gives us a portion of grace we need, the strength we need in order to overcome certain things and to surrender them. Now, because it's a relationship, I think that's kind of obvious, but it's not meant to be done alone. Right? You're going to be doing it with Jesus. And also because it's a relationship, it's a lot easier with other people that are healthy on the same journey trying to do the same thing. Right? It's like, uh, like uh, for example, I think of the, um, I don't know, what's the athletic group that always does the workouts you guys do? What's it called? CrossFit. Yeah, CrossFit. So CrossFit people, they go to do it together, right? Because it's easier to do together than it is to do alone. Right? So a lot of things that we try to improve in our life are meant to be done in relationship. And the same thing in our growth with Jesus. It's meant to be done with people, which is, again, one of the reasons why we gather together. Because it's easier to pursue righteousness and relationship together than it is to try to do it in the world all by yourself. It reminds me of Elijah a little bit. Remember Elijah, is kind of a side note, but remember his story where he says, I'm the only prophet? Right? I'm the only one left. The only one that lives like this, God. And then God sends him to a widow and her son, so he's not alone. Right? Kind of an odd pairing. But the point is, God's like, no, you're not. He tells him, yeah, oh, I have all these other hundreds of prophets as well elsewhere, but I'm going to hook you, or not hook you up with somebody. It might be interpreted wrong. I'm going to connect you with somebody <laughs> so that you're not alone. Right? And so he lives with this lady and her, her young son. All right. We're gonna, speaking of Elijah, we're going to look at his story real quick. We're going to be in 1 Kings, if you want to turn there. Actually, I'm going to read just one little section. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 2 in a second. I'm going to read 1 Kings first. I'm going to talk about this idea of pursuing righteousness. Hungering for it, really, is what it is. Being hungry for righteousness. Being hungry to be more like God. You know, if you're hungry to be more like God, it's like when you're hungry for food. Right? When you're hungry for food, you're a little grumpy with yourself. Ever have that happen? Because you need food. Right? If you're hungry for righteousness, you get a little grumpy with yourself because you're not content with where you are and you want to be more like Jesus. Does that make sense? So Jesus told us to hunger to be more like him. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 21, what's going on is Elisha is hungry for God. And the reason we know he's hungry for God is because of how he responds when Elijah tells him to come. He says, so Elisha left him, he's Elijah, he goes back to his, his, his home here. He took his yoke of oxen, he was a farmer, and he slaughtered his oxen. He burned the plowing, his, all of his farm equipment, to cook the meat, and he gave it to all the people who were there, and they ate. 
Then he set out to a file, follow Elijah and became a servant. So what's going on here is Elisha is a farmer, but he's hungry for God. He's a farmer who's hungry for God to do more in his life. And so when he gets the opportunity, he literally, if you would, burns down the farm. So he's not tempted to stay there, and he goes and follows God and what God wants him to do. Right, you ever hear the, I think it's a popular Christian song, Burn the Ships? Right, it's also a saying from when Cortez went, came to America and he burned the ships so nobody could go back. It's really the original where that line comes from. Right? The point is he's burning the old way of life so that you pursue wholeheartedly the new. Elisha is hungry for God. Elijah does not tell him to do this. Elisha does it because he doesn't want to be looking back in the mirror all the time. Oh, what am I losing? What am I missing out on? Oh, look at all my friends. They're all having fun. I mean, yeah, they're drinking and doing really stupid things, but man, what am I missing out on? Elisha burns the ways of the world that are, might hold him back. And he pursues hungrily, wholeheartedly what God has in store for him for the days ahead in his life. We get to 2 Kings chapter 2. you don't know the story, Elijah is about to leave Elisha. I know the names can be kind of confusing. Elijah is the old prophet. Elisha is the new one. Elisha is the student. And Elisha is not eager for Elijah to take off. Right? He's not eager to be the, the guy in charge, if you would. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 3. They're walking around together. It says, a company of prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. He said, so be quiet. In other words, Elisha tells him, I don't want to hear about it. Stop talking about it. Right? Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. Elijah, Elisha replies, he says, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. Elisha's digging in his heels here a little bit, right? Then the company of prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Elisha tells him, Yes, I know, he replied. So be quiet, right? He's telling him nicely, Shut up, right? I don't want to hear it. I don't want this to happen. Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. Elisha replies, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. Ever have something you're facing and you're just not ready for it? You don't feel ready for it? Elisha, as faithful as he's been, is not prepared, doesn't feel in his heart. Prepared or equipped for what he knows is about to come his way. But he is hungry to be more like Jesus. He's hungry for righteousness. You're going to see it happen here. Verse 7. It says, 50 men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped the Jordan. Elijah took off his cloak, he rolled it up, and he struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two men crossed over into the dry ground. When they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. See, what he's asking him is, tell me what you need 
Tell me what you need to feel ready for the challenge that's about to come your way. Challenges. What do you need? And Elisha responds, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. What Elisha is really saying is, I want to be twice as righteous as you are. And he's telling the most righteous person in the world at the time. That would make me feel like I'm ready for what God's going to ask me to do. Pretty big request, right? Sounds maybe even a little arrogant. But what Elisha really is, is he's very hungry to be more like Jesus and to be more like God. And he feels like if I'm going to take on all the challenges of the world and the religious snobs, then I need a whole lot of Jesus to be able to do it well. And so Elisha asks, Jesus, come and fill me up with the incredible portion of your grace so that I can face all the challenges that this life has for me. Bow your heads, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this night. Again, God, I know no one's here by accident. Lord, each one of us is at a different walk with you. Some of us may not have started. Some of us may be um, honestly just kind of checking you out and um, think this whole thing is kind of a religious gag. Lord, some of us are, are really struggling with the things of the world weighing us down. Or some of us may be taking really healthy strides in your direction. But God, I pray wherever we are, that there would be within us, deep within our soul and within our spirit, and that we would feel it emotionally, understand it mentally, recognize it even physically, God, that there is a hunger within us to be more righteous and be more like you. There is a satisfaction that only you can fill. Jesus, help us break free of the things that uh, make us into hypocrites. And help us pursue hungrily your kingdom and your way of doing life. Help us to be more like you next year than we are this year. Help us to extend grace to each other, Lord, and to ourselves. And to those around us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.